Hello and welcome to the Pint of Science Ireland podcast. I'm Brian Kennedy and today we're bringing you extended cuts of the science festival taking place in pubs across Ireland and as part of International Pint of Science. Today we're joined by Dr. Kira Egan. Dr. Egan is a lecturer in clinical neuroscience with the School of Psychology at the University of Galway, where she's also the course coordinator for the university's MSc in clinical neuroscience. Her research focuses on cognitive neuroscience and open science, particularly in the areas of reading, reading difficulties, and language comprehension. Her Pint of Science talk this past year was all about the science of reading. I learned so much from this interview with Dr. Egan, particularly about how she measures things like concentration in her laboratory and how she separates out the processes and challenges that go along with reading. Her knowledge on these topics is vast, but she also placed how we think about reading and reading difficulties fully in context, explaining how society interacts and reflects on reading and the assumptions we bring with us into this topic. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Grab a pint, it's starting. So Dr. Egan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really delighted to have you join us. Um, and uh, this research topic was one that I was really uh, kicking myself. I wasn't able to make your talk um, during the year, uh, but hopefully we can um, we can cover some of those uh, topics you did and, and maybe go in a bit more in depth. Awesome. Sounds good. I was going to say you're going to miss the parts of my talk where I had a bunch of books as props, but um, hopefully we can get <laughs> some of the flavor. Well, that's one of the um, the downsides, I suppose, of the podcast medium is that Unfortunately, the, the listener is going to have to, uh, to imagine, do their best to imagine. So we'll, we'll go right into it. So you spoke in your Pine of Science talk about the science of reading. What drew you to this field of research? So I got into this area completely accidentally, um, and I'm very thankful that I did. So my background is in psychology and neuroscience. Um, and when I started my master's, I knew I wanted to do something focused on the brain because I'm fascinated by it, how it works you know, what happens when things go awry. Um, and I ended up working with this wonderful woman who did research on bilinguals and reading in bilinguals. And so I kind of got working on that for my master's. And by some fluke, she got this, she got funding for a PhD focused on what aspects of a book make people interested in it, what makes someone love to read it. And I've been a big reader for everywhere. Uh, in my Pint of Science talk, I had a Jacqueline Wilson book and I was like, this was my best friend as a kid. Like I, I was one of those kids. Um, so I, I saw this call and I thought, oh my God, you could actually study what makes people like reading. This sounds like the best thing ever. Um, so I did that for three years and I kind of haven't stopped since. So luck is how I got into this field. <laughs> I think that's interesting. Um, I've been reflecting a little bit in my own free time about um, different paths that people take into research and into academia. And, um, you know, sometimes people can get a little bit jaded. They think it's a lot of it is luck or being in the right place at the right time. How do you bridge those feelings? Do you have those similar or or how do you kind of think of your own story getting into the work you do now? Yeah, I, I think it would, it definitely, there's an element of luck in being in the right place at the right time. Um, because if I'd say been a year earlier or later, I I wouldn't have done the PhD I'd done with the person who I would have. Um, but I also think I would have done something and it probably would have been related. And I, I probably would have gotten into language and reading research eventually, um, just maybe not in the same way. 
because I find, you know, th- topics that I would have been drawn to in my undergraduate degree, like I was really into sleep research, are starting to creep back into my research career now. So I think, I don't know, if it's meant to be, you will get back to it and you'll find the opportunities. And if the real interest is there, you'll you'll start researching things again. But I, I think it is what you're exposed to and what you think is interesting and what opportunities there are, really. Yeah, I think that's that really makes sense to me as well. It's it's a whole distillation of everything coming together and, and very much driven uh, from the person as well and putting themselves in the position where they can see an opportunity for what it is and, and know where they can take it and follow it. Now, I will um, say I actually was really bad at that during my master's. I had uh, a lecturer come up to me in a course and say, so you, you've you talked a lot about you know books and reading and stuff. And I was like, yeah. Like, why aren't you applying for this PhD? And I said, Oh, I'm I'm not ready to do a PhD. I don't think I'd be good enough. And uh, he he might have used some inappropriate language to be to tell me how stupid <laughs> I was being. And so I actually applied for that the day of the deadline. So wow. maybe people pushing you to recognize opportunities is a good good thing as well. Mm. And the importance of mentors who who can really look out for students and and see potential and and encourage them to to act on it. Massively, yeah. And I, I think that's a big part of my teaching role now is being like telling, you know, my students joke that I'm a bit like a primary school teacher because I'm like, you're all amazing. And I try and push them <laughs> towards doing everything that they want to. Well, fantastic. Um, I think that's the best way to be a teacher. And certainly um, in my own studies, I'll have seen that, you know, a lot of PIs will talk about how a lot of their work is, um, funnily enough, almost pastoral when it comes to their, their PhD students and their team. Um, so moving on, society places a lot of weight behind reading and reading well. How does that impact the research you do and how you approach it? So it impacts it in a kind of, in a few ways. Um, so my research initially was very focused on kind of the mechanics of reading in terms of eye movements and what happens in the brain. And th- there's still a lot of that that I do. Um, but increasingly, I'm starting to actually look at the impact of this weight. So if we look at adults with dyslexia, I'm looking at things like reading ability, their self-perception of their own reading ability, and kind of anxiety around reading. Because it is this funny thing where reading is a skill, it's a learned skill, it's not something anyone's born knowing how to do. And yet, if you find it difficult to learn this skill, it's considered a disorder. You know, so my example is always that I am awful at riding a bike I you know my grandmother spent ages trying to teach me it did not work um but no one considers it a riding a bike disorder the same way they would call it a reading disorder or writing disorder even though these are quite similar learned skills it's just that societally it's considered that we need to be able to do them well um so I'd say I mostly look at how how it how that affects people who maybe aren't aren't doing as well with those skills. Um, and in the lab, it's also a little bit of um, anxiety management because if I've, say if I'm doing one of my studies and I'm looking at um, how adults with dyslexia process meaning when they're reading, I have to do a whole battery of background tests. So looking at um, how well they extract sounds from letters um, and how quickly they can read words and things like this just to kind of validate their reading background. And that can be kind of an anxiety inducing thing if you don't handle it well, because it might be reminiscent of the assessments they've had to do to get diagnosed. And also you're asking someone 
So this is something that society says you should be able to do well. You can't. Now I'm going to make you do a bunch of tasks that we know you're going to be bad at. Um, so it's it's about having those kind of conversations with people and just being very supportive and being aware of it as well. Hmm. So many people come into your lab. You're interested in the different ways that they might be reading. Um, how much do you know already about how different people read? So I'm going to say we as a field, because I feel I don't know enough. Um, but we as a field know an awful lot and also nowhere near enough. Because um, reading is one of those things that is kind of impacted by everything. Um, so you may or may not be aware to get a diagnosis of dyslexia. You firstly, we need to show that you have had adequate academic opportunity or educational opportunity. So the child has to have been given um, the opportunity to learn to read in a good environment. Um, so that's kind of an obvious one that as psychologists or neuroscientists, people don't think we look at, but actually the educational space is key, the home environment, and then we get into things like genetics and um, the kind of neural correlates as well. So it's a difficult research research space to be in because you have to take into consideration so many different factors, both external and internal. And the fact that you do just get individual variation um, as well, that seems to be based on none of these factors or some combination of them. Uh, so we know a lot. We know lots of things affected, but we, we need to, there's always more work to be done in this space. And I don't know that, that it's one of those fields we're ever going to really narrow in. Is it a consequence, this difficulty to narrow in to, to causes and, and underlying patterns? Is, is it difficult because um, there's so many parts that come into reading? Someone's background, I, I'm just imagining now myself, but perhaps even the different languages that they speak. For people who are bilingual, does, is that a, does that seriously affect different ways that they read? And, and what kind of overlays and transfer effects happen there? So being bilingual will affect um, how you read in really interesting ways. Um, and so one my, my first paper actually was on reading style differences in bilinguals when they read in English versus in Welsh. Um, and when we say reading style, I mean at the very at the eye movement level. Um, so in both languages, they were kind of equally reading for comprehension, like understanding it. But you, you got different eye movements based on what language they were reading in. And that was due to what we said it was due to um, how transparent Welsh is as a language. So in English, as you might remember from your own primary school, you have to learn a lot of exception words and exceptions to rules about reading. Um, and there's a lot of words, stuff like yacht and kernel, that you just have to learn how they're said. You can't figure that out by sounding out the letters. Whereas in Welsh, you can sound out every letter. Um, and so we found that bilinguals in Welsh, they that's how they read, letter by letter. And in English, they kind of will take more of the whole picture of the word or kind of at syllable level because you can't, the same strategy doesn't work. Um, and so that was in highly skilled adult readers. You also get, as you, you alluded to, transfer effects. So a few words that are the same between two languages, such as cognates. Um, so like the word banana is actually the same in English, Welsh and Irish. Um, but you also get what are called false friends, which are words that look the same, but actually have a different meaning and can trip you up. Um, so in Irish, the word gloss means green and in Welsh, it means blue. And that messes me up all of the time. 
Um, so all of these things are going to impact on your reading um, before before we get into all of those individual factors about you in additional. Right. And are there some aspects of certain languages that make them more difficult for uh, second languages to be learned? For example, I'm thinking of English. Uh, it's history as a language that results from old German, uh, you know, Norman French, and then, of course, some uh, parts of kind of a Gaelic influence as well. So um, how does that sort of all come together and affect the way uh, readers who have it as a second language come into it? Yeah, I, I would say all of those things kind of play a part. And I think your first language will affect it as well. Um, so if we think about, say, uh, people who have grown up speaking English, trying to learn a non-alphabetic language, such as Mandarin, they might struggle a lot with that because it's a completely different, it's, it's not an alphabet, it's a completely different written language structure than what they're used to. Um, whereas if someone was trying to go from, say, German to Welsh, they're both alphabetic languages that are quite transparent. So again, the letters match the sounds. They have a similar enough grammatical structure that might be an easier one to go to. Um, and then obviously you've got languages that are very similar in both kind of structure and have a lot of overlap. Um, so say German and Dutch, things like this, that might be cl more closely related in their history as languages. So I feel like my answer to all your questions is it's complicated, but that's what keeps me in a <laughs> oh, job is having all of this but, to look at. <laughs> oh, we love complexity. You know, complexity is where the interesting edge cases and, and fascinating examples are. And, and although it's, you know, might be frustrating, it's, uh, it's fun to think about. So we've spoken about difficulties people might have reading dyslexia, a prime example. How much do we know about the neuroscience that underlies a, a difficulty like dyslexia? Um, so it's an emerging and increasingly emerging field. Um, so ever since kind of the advent of MRI and fMRI, um, where you can match the brain location with the function, it's been a booming field is uh, imaging studies about dyslexia, trying to underlie exactly this. And so there are a lot of studies out there looking at kind of what brain areas might be impacted in dyslexia. Um, ones that are increasingly coming out that, that I've been focusing on are looking at the arcuate fasciculus, which is a white matter tract that, uh, sorry, I don't know why I'm pointing, it's a podcast, <laughs> that links kind of two, er two key language areas in your brain. But a lot, a lot of different areas have been implicated, um, and so we're, we're still kind of trying to narrow down on it. Personally, I'm quite interested in kind of the, the functional neuroscience, so I use EEG to look at um, electrical brain activity while people are doing reading tasks. Um, and so there's a few different, what we call ERP components, so almost like neural signatures um, that I look at as a judge of certain things while reading. So for example, one of them is kind of a marker of semantic comprehension or understanding. And I look at kind of different uh, reading tasks and different parts of text and how that signature might differ in adults with dyslexia when they're reading different parts of texts. So when you're doing these experiments and you have a, a readout, some data points, um, how do you correlate those to specific behaviors or activities you're interested in that happen when someone's reading? That's a great question. Um, so what I love about EEG is it's super specific. Um, so it gets down to the millisecond level. So the signature I'm interested in 
we time lock it to a specific word, say in a sentence. Um, so that the classic example for the N400 that I work with is you get a big N400 to things that don't make sense in language. So you would give someone a sentence like, I like my coffee with cream and dog. And so you would you would time lock their EEG signal, you'd extract a segment from when they read that word, um, and then about 400 milliseconds after they read that word, you would expect to see this big peak in their signal that says they that didn't that didn't fit with what they were predicting language-wise. Um, and and what exactly is generating the signal? Is it uh, purely just um, is it brain activity? What is that? Is it is electronic behavior in the brain? I, I really don't have the words for it. Um, maybe our listeners don't either. No, that's fair. Um, so it it is the electrical activity within your brain. Um, so as you're kind of doing anything, if you're at rest or if you're thinking or doing anything, um, you know, neurons are firing in your brain. Those are the cells, they're talking to each other. And that is all generating electrical activity. Um, and then my participants will wear a cap on their head that has electrodes on it. Um, and from those electrodes, we can measure just the ongoing electrical activity from their scalp. Um, and we can pick up what's going on kind of all the time. Wow. So besides building the scientific knowledge base for how people with reading difficulties engage with text, what other benefits would you like to see coming out of your research? So this is something that I've been reflecting on a lot recently. Um, so I, I moved back to Ireland a couple of years ago. I'm in a new department and the focus here is slightly different to where I was previously. Um, and there's a lot of focus around mental health here and it's made me kind of reflect on my own research. And so I think my neuroscientific research in the lab is amazing. If you don't mind me saying, I love it. Um, and I think it does tell us kind of key things about dyslexia and what might be underpinning it and what might be going on with adults with dyslexia, um, particularly those who are what we call compensated. So where they're performing well in, at reading day to day, but there's still something different going on. I think that's all interesting. But increasingly, I, I'm doing a little bit more applied research. So as I said, looking at um, anxiety in adults with dyslexia, looking at things like adjustment to university in adults with dyslexia, um, educational supports, what they are, how people engage with them, how they work. Um, this has kind of come out of, as I said, moving, and also the fact that by nature of my research, an EEG session lasts about two hours. I actually spend a lot of time talking to students with dyslexia in the lab. Um, and so I naturally was kind of hearing issues they have or, or things they're maybe not happy with that aren't working well. Um, and so that line of my research, I think, is probably going to be the most impactful because it has quite here and now effects for things that could be improved in their lives. And speaking of things that might be improved upon, some of your research suggests that certain stylistic and writing patterns make reading easier, and specifically for people who have reading difficulties like dyslexia. Could you tell us a bit more about what those stylistic patterns might be and how they work for people who are reading? Um, so I'm casting my mind back to my PhD now when I have to write about this a lot. Um, so within literature, you've got kind of what we call backgrounding and foregrounding techniques. Um, and those, those have two very different aims. 
So my PhD focused on foregrounding techniques, which are things that are meant to attract your attention to the text itself. So things like alliteration. So words that start with the same letter and sound. So dazzling diamond. Um, and my PhD focused on and found that individuals process those kind of phrases more easily. So we get less of an N for hundreds. Um, and also they gain a little bit more attention than phrases that didn't alliterate. So like sparkling diamond still makes sense, but it, it's not quite as attention capturing. Um, things like rhyme and metaphor similes are similar. And I've done some work around simile processing as well. The, so you would see that kind of technique an awful lot in poetry in particular. So it, it's part of that poetic style. The other technique that I haven't done as much work on, but I am very interested in, is backgrounding. And so that's everything else that goes into the construction of a text. So character development, plot, that kind of thing. And that's meant to have the opposite effect. It's meant to kind of draw you into the text in a way that gets you immersed and makes you kind of forget that you're reading as such. And so you see that a lot in kind of novels um, and popular fiction. And so that's something I haven't looked at as much. And I, I'm actually quite interested to see how that does work in dyslexia, um, but I haven't gotten to it yet, so I will. But you, you do see, as I said, different amounts of these techniques in different ki kinds of texts. Do you think that it's reasonable or that we might see going forward ways to make non-pleasurable reading, so reading that's for work, reading that's for students, uh, be adapted to make it more accessible for people with reading difficulties? Or is that something that is just not workable? That is a great question. Um, I would say there's, de there's definitely ways to make it somewhat easier. If, if I think about another strand of my research, which is kind of working on um, education and how to make, you know, uh, I do a little bit of work around statistics education, how to make students hate it a little bit less. Um, you know, part, part of that is things like in engaging with humour and like pop culture within the text. Um, so you see some actually really good statistics textbooks now that are, are quite funny when you read them. And so that helps all readers because even a stats nerd like myself, it, it's generally not a fun experience to sit down and read a textbook like that. Um, so, so elements of that could definitely be pulled in and that, that would kind of be an element of backgrounding because what you don't want in a textbook or, or a manual or anything someone has to read is them really focusing on the phrases and not taking in the content. Um, I would say, not to, you know, dismiss all my own research, but um, there is also an element of having different modes of engaging with material. So we're recording a podcast right now and I think that's a great way for someone with a reading difficulty to maybe not have to read all my papers um, and to just hear about what I do. Or you can you also get services that do, you know, put journal articles into audio format. Um, increasingly, I think as educators, we're trying to integrate more like videos and recordings and stuff. Um, and it, it's generally better for accessibility for a whole load of groups, um, not just people with reading difficulties. So I, I would say yes and to that question as such. Mm. So to circle back on something you were just talking about, which was um, kind of the different modes we can engage with, with texts and, and you use the example of um, 
even academic papers being put to um, to to voice by these various softwares. Although I think often they'll get a, an AI voice to read it out. And I don't know how how pleasurable that is to listen to, um, but hopefully we'll get better and be able to be more engaging. There's something of a debate that comes around about, you know, whether even listening to audiobooks counts as reading at all. What do you think about that? And are there important differences in comprehension between reading visually and listening to an audiobook or another text? I, I'm so glad you asked me this because this actually came up as a big discussion after my point of, Pint of Science talk. So part of what I do want to look at at some point, and I, I did have an undergrad student doing it a couple of years ago, was engagement with things like audiobooks in adults with dyslexia. Um, maybe not my best scientific study because the question is just very simply, I want to know what the rates are like. And early data kind of suggested that adults with dyslexia are listening to more audiobooks. And so my short answer is, I think that's great. I think in terms of engaging with literature, you know, any way people can access it is amazing. So I, I consider it kind of the same level as reading. I, I don't know how to phrase that. I, I think people have a bit of a, I don't know, I don't want to say snobby view of it or like it's not real reading, but I'm, well, if, if you've read a full book, um, you've read a full book. What it mm. won't do is part of why, you know, people push, this is coming right back to your first question, actually, part of why people push their kids to read so much and schools push reading is it's that practicing of the reading. It, it makes them better at the skill of reading. And you're not going to get that from listening to an audiobook. So I, I do understand that kind of view on it. But I also think, especially when it comes to adults, if it's a case that you're not going to read a book or you're going to listen to it, well, I, I'd rather the person listen to the book. Um, I actually don't know much about the comprehension side of things. I do know that there was a recent enough study, and I'd have to look up to find the details because I can't remember, that showed similar comprehension for children who were read a story and reading the story. So that would speak to something. So this would have been like in a bedtime story type scenario. Mm. Um, so, so that would say that the comprehension is likely very similar. But I would say that's, that's research that should be done. Um, and I might look into doing just to to get on my high horse about audiobooks being great. Yeah, I, I certainly listen to to many, many audiobooks. It's, a, you know, not to, to veer too off topic, but it's I find it such a great way to just reclaim, you know, otherwise dead time. You're doing the dishes, you're cleaning the house, uh, you're commuting. Um, it's a way to keep uh, keep just your curiosity kind of satiated the whole time. I, I really enjoy it. Yeah. Joe, it's funny, I actually um, don't listen to audiobooks. I, I just think they're great. <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so do you find, um, is there something that steers you away from, from listening to audiobooks? I think I just really enjoy having a book in my hands and reading it and that kind of dedicated time that that's just all I'm doing. Um, and I find mm. it difficult to get that immersion piece with an audiobook. As you said, if you're kind of, if I'm washing the dishes or whatever, I, I can't quite get into the book the same way. Um, so it's probably mm. that for me, it's kind of some dedicated, like, this is time I'm taking for myself is to read. Um, and yeah, but I, maybe I should try an audiobook. <laughs> I think you should. Moving on, psychology is a field that is having something of a reproducibility crisis. 
Um, since you're a neuroscientist and a psychologist, is reproducibility something that you're concerned about? Uh, what do you do to ensure other researchers can reproduce your findings? Um, so I'm really glad you asked that because it's actually something I'm quite passionate about. Um, I think I was lucky in that I did kind of my undergraduate degree and master's at a time where this was really becoming to the forefront, um, which I think means I, I was kind of doing my training as such at a point where people were really talking about how do we fix these issues, which is great. Um, so there's a current, a current kind of move to stop calling it a reproducibility crisis and start calling it a credibility revolution. So it's like an opportunity for us to do things better. Um, so I, I'm quite involved in what is called the open science movement. And that's a way to kind of change how we do science that will make things more reproducibility, reproducible. Sorry. Um, so that would be things like pre-registering my experiments. So where I lay out a detailed protocol, my hypotheses, what I expect to find, my analyses, what I'll do. For EEG, that includes things like what electrodes I'll be looking at, what time windows exactly, all of this. Um, and you put it on a time stamped registry so that essentially I can't change my mind later and say, oh, actually, I meant to look over here, you know. Yeah. So that's good in two parts because I'm a forgetful human and it means that I've got like a recipe of everything I'm going to do for an experiment ready at the start. And it also lends a little bit more credence to my findings and it means that if someone wants to replicate my study, they have a recipe to follow. They can do exactly what it says on the tin. Um, it's other things as well, like sharing your data. Um, so that would be anonymous, unidentifiable data on appropriate platforms and things like this so that other people can reproduce your analyses. For any of my online studies, I, um, I use Gorilla, which is an experiment builder. And that allows me to actually share all of my tasks so other people could actually use the exact same experiment I have done themselves, say in a different country or a different language or a different group. Um, so all of this makes it easier to collaborate with people and also for people to reproduce your work and kind of double check it. Mm. Uh, certainly, I can see um, how that would be just so directly useful for collaboration. Um, when it comes to reproducing work, do you find that people have reproduced some of your work to test it and see if they get the same results? How, how does that really um, work in your particular field? Um, so I think it's something that's increasing um, as more journals kind of accept replications. So where you directly do the same thing as someone else, more of that is happening. Um, for my own work, I, I kind of did a bunch of pseudo replications in my PhD. Like all my PhD experiments were very similar. And so like one of my main findings about um, alliteration kind of, making things be processed more easily. I think I, I did that in four different experiments in my PhD. So I have a bit of uh, faith in that one, uh, but no one else has tried to replicate it yet. I'd welcome that. Um, yeah, I'm also increasingly part of these kind of large scale replication studies. So where lots of labs around the world. Um, so something like EEG many labs, where say key EEG studies lots of labs around the world will come together on a joint project to replicate these kind of big papers from the field and say, okay, these replicate. Okay, so moving into the final part of our episode, um, although I'd love to keep talking to you because I have, as every time you answer a question, I can think of many, many more that I'd like to pose. Um, 
What do you think are the biggest misconceptions people have about the work that you do? The number one misconception people have is I say, I study dyslexia and people say, oh, so what's it like working with kids? Um, so I actually only work with adults with dyslexia. That's where my research focuses. Um, but the, there is a big misconception that dyslexia is something that's limited to childhood and that that's where the research happens. Um, it makes sense because a lot of amazing work is being done looking at interventions to kind of help kids um, improve their reading at an early age. Early intervention is a key aim of this research field, but it's just not where I'm at. I'm, I'm kind of focused on the adults who are there now who have dyslexia and what their experience is and how reading works for them. Uh, so that's the biggest misconception about what I do personally. Yeah. Um, so finally, thanks so much for joining us, Kira. Um, could you tell the listener where they can find you? Um, and do you have anywhere you'd like to recommend for getting your science news? Absolutely. So if you are interested in actually reading my papers, yay, I'll have one reader. Um, I, I'm, I've got a ResearchGate profile where I put them all up and I'm quite active on Twitter, um, at BrainbowPoi, um, and increasingly on X, although I don't think I've actually posted there yet. Um, and then for science-related news, I love the conversation. My students are sick of hearing me talk about it. it. It's a really nice place that like summarizes research and research papers and research topics for a lay audience. Um, so I actually really enjoy it for reading about things that aren't in my area because I don't have that specialism. Um, and for any who are interested in the kind of work I do, uh, the British Psychological Society have a magazine called The Psychologist that similarly does articles for a lay audience about psychology related topics. And it's it's written again by people who, who know what they're talking about um, and does really nice summaries. So those are my recommendations. Well, I'll have to be checking those out myself because um, they certainly sound like like excellent reading. Okay, thanks again, Kira. Um, it was a real pleasure having you. I learned a huge amount and I'm sure our listeners did as well. Um, and maybe we can look forward to having uh, further uh, pint of science talks from you in the future. Um, that would be great. I love my science accompanied by a pint. So, <laughs> sounds good. Thank you so much. All right, take, take care. care. Thank Bye. you. Bye. That's everything for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you would like to find out more about us or Pint of Science Ireland, follow at Pint of Science IE on Twitter and Instagram. That's at Pint of Science and then the letters IE, all one full string. And you can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. Dr. Egan can be found on Twitter at Brainbow, P-O-I. That's the word rainbow with the letter B in front of it followed by the letters P-O-I, or you can find her through the University of Galway's website, where she has listed her academic papers, should you like to follow her work. Try searching the university and her name. This podcast series is produced by Olus Productions, using multimedia to bring you more on science, society, and all things in between. This episode was made with Brian on sound, and the editing assistance of Molly McCrory and Kate Finucane. Research assistance was also from Brian Kennedy and Molly McCrory. Thanks to the co-directors of Pint of Science Ireland for 2023, Ashley Gorman and Kevin Mercurio, as well as Science Foundation Ireland. And thanks again to Dr. Egan for joining us on this episode. 
Pint of Science Ireland is part of the global initiative Pint of Science, which aims to bring the research to you, the people that fund it. We'll see you next month. This has been Brian Kennedy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>